This podcast is brought to you by Aetna. Learn how Aetna is working to build a healthier world by visiting aetnastory.com. Hi, it's Doro, and I'm so excited to announce that the Achieving Optimal Health Conference is just around the corner on October 26th at Georgetown University. For our Health Gig listeners, we have a special offer. If you sign up by September 20th, you'll get $50 off your ticket. Just go to AchievingOptimalHealthConference.com and use the code HEALTHGIG. Get ready to create a happier and healthier life story. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Welcome to the BBNR Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Patricia Riley Cook. And I'm your host, Dora Bush Cook. Thank you for listening. We are so excited that we get to do this podcast and help people learn how to take better care of themselves by interviewing thought leaders and experts in health and wellness about their personal health journeys. This week, we're talking to Chuck Leaf, the president of Naropa University. And we absolutely love him. He's a great friend and a supporter of our work and has spoken at our Achieving Optimal Health Conference. Chuck was president of the Greystone Foundation, chairman of the board for the Social Enterprise Alliance and Shambhala International. You are going to love what he says about taking mindfulness and using it to really change the world. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Chuck Leaf, and we'll check back in with you at the end of the program. Good way to start. It would be, you know, what's on your mind? What are you doing? I know we want to know that. Um, we also want to hear your whole history, but we'll get to that next. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think what's on my mind these days, and because I'm the president of a small college, which is uh, was an unusual uh, career move for me. What's on my mind is what are we doing to uh, support and train. Uh, the next one or two generations of leaders and how does mindfulness, meditation practice, compassion and empathy training uh, have an impact in in that work? And that, you know, from my point of view, totally separate from any political partisan issues, um, what as a country, we've kind of lost the ability to relate with each other in an open and honest and and uh, uh, compassionate way. And in part, from my point of view and what we do with students is we work on issues of listening and of uh, putting yourselves in the shoes of Mm -hmm. others as a way of starting uh, some dialogue. And I think that if we uh, evolved uh, as a society to be able to actually engage with each other more openly and honestly, that would be a huge first step to some kind of healing. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's can't help it uh, on my mind. That, that's that's great, yeah. and thank you for sharing that. We noticed on your website too, and you've said this before that the is it your mission statement is transform yourself, transform the world. Right. Is that Naropa's? Can you expand on that? Yeah, I think that that, um, and especially these days, I mean, mindfulness means basically means anything to anyone, which mm. is on the one hand a good thing because it's an emerging kind of uh, field of activity in, in many ways for a lot of people. Uh, and on the other hand, I think it's in need of some definition. And one of the things that we pay a lot of attention to is that um, we view mindfulness training, meditation training as more than a self-help 
technique. Now, mm. it's a good thing to actually feel that you need to bring some balance into your life and that you need to actually figure out a way that you can provide a uh, kind of uh, kind of surround yourself with, with, with wellness and, and, and kind of adopt the kinds of techniques that you both, uh, uh, have worked on for so many years. Uh, but to me, that's a starting point. And so maybe the transform yourself piece is both the start, middle and end for a lot of people that there's work that's done personally. I feel more centered. I feel more balanced. I feel more relaxed. I feel more energetic. I, 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 those are very common, the, the co common words in the conversation that we have. And I think from our perspective, that's halfway. And then the mm -hmm. other half is the what can we do externally? The transform the world piece, which is a big statement, of course, uh, has everything to do with who am I in the bigger world? How am I engaging in a bigger society? How am I being helpful to others? Being helpful to others first means that you need to understand who you are as an individual and kind of address your own mm -hmm. issues, knowing that that's work that's never going to end. So you can't wait until you become the perfect version of yourself and then start doing something else. But what you can do is develop enough confidence that you um, can act skillfully and with compassion and kindness and then actually start doing something, even if you're doing it as a somewhat still flawed person, because we're going to be flawed till we die. Right. I mean, that's just the reality with maybe a couple of exceptions. And, you know, we, we can take a vote as who that might be. But but for the most part, that's just the way we are. And so it's not sequential. I'm going to fix myself first, then I'm going to step out and help the world. Uh, the world will never get helped in that case. I like when you when doing a little research what you said to some graduates i think in 2015 or something don't expect a transcendental microwave oven <laughs> can you can you explain that a little bit well i think that um there and and again because i haven't spent most of my career working with younger people what i found and i teach a class i teach a class on social innovation at, at naropa which mm. is a real challenge for me because it's to undergraduates um but there is this there's an incredible sense of impatience and wanting everything to happen as soon as i want it to happen mm. and i think that comes out of uh uh obviously a sort of technologically evolved society. Uh, we have, especially younger people are used to instant results. You need to know something, you Google it, you get the answer, you're done. Mm -hmm. Now that answer may not be right, but you've got an answer and you kind of move on. And I think that um, part of our job is to talk, is to re-engage people from the perspective of patience and discipline and the need for practice. And we call mindfulness or meditation practice for a reason, that it takes this kind of ongoing commitment. And so it isn't just a question of, uh, you know, what you would take an hour in, in your on your stovetop takes 45 seconds in the microwave oven. I mean, there is no magic bullet that I can kind of uh, uh, receive some training, go off and do it for a little bit, come out and feel that I'm I've done it. And, mm -hmm. and it's finished. And so I think that becomes uh, part of the job that we all have if we're out there teaching mindfulness or meditation practices to also uh, encourage people to understand the need to take some time to create some space for this mm -hmm. practice to actually evolve. And that patience is not a quality that we find very often uh, in each other. And I think that it's a a very important one for us to kind of come back to. And what you're saying is that we can cultivate patience, that that's, uh, that's um, 
a character trait that can be created? Oh, I think absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think that, that, um, so for example, if you, uh, you know, if you have a meditation practice and, you know, many people do, and, you know, you're sitting quietly perhaps, and you're kind of doing whatever you're kind of, you know, working with your breath or with whatever other thing that you're doing. Uh, the fact is, is the thoughts and feelings and emotions are constantly going to come up. And then there'll be a moment when you basically can let them go. And then they're going to come back again. And there's going to be a moment you let them go. And if you don't have a, a, a kind of guidance in developing qualities of patience, the level of frustration is going to get to a point where it should basically drive you away from the practice. Mm-hmm. Because it's so easy to come away and say, well, I'm never going to get this. I don't know what they're right. talking about, this business of being <laughs> present. I mean, because I'm never present. I'm always either in the past or the future. That's the way I live my life. And if you don't have the patience to actually allow those things to rise and fall and really experience what's going on, um, then, you know, you're never going to be satisfied uh, with what you're doing as a practitioner. And so mm-hmm. I do think that that's important. Patience, however, doesn't mean inaction. And right. I think that right. becomes the, 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 the important and sometimes the tricky place is mm-hmm. that how are we both spacious allowing yeah. things to take their time and to happen uh to observe the world in a, in the in a very broad spacious way and at the same time take a look at the suffering around us and actually do something about it and can you hold both of those at the same time that's not so simple but mm-hmm. i think it's important mm-hmm. you mentioned um in that same address to graduates that we have to experience suffering ourselves and suffering of those we love before we can address suffering in the world. Is that right? Um, Yeah, more. Yes. Uh, Again, it's somewhat, um, it's part of an overall path. So I'm a Buddhist and, uh, you know, but, but as we know, mindfulness and meditation goes across any spiritual religious traditions or is applicable to somebody without one. But from a Buddhist point of view, um, you know, the Buddha's kind of core teaching is called the Four Noble Truths. And the first one is a truth of suffering, basically an acknowledgement that as human beings, we are personally, we will personally experience suffering and that we're suffering in a bigger world. That's just the nature of what it is to be human. Uh, It then goes on because there's some opportunities to do something about that. But it starts from this kind of recognition that suffering is, um, uh, it's kind of a natural part of what it means to be a human being. And that's not depressing. It's more just a fact of what it means to be, uh, to be a feeling, thinking person in a community with other feeling, thinking people. And so it is important, um, I think, for us to recognize, and and I don't mean suffering in this most melodramatic sense. I mean, certainly a lot of us have experienced that kind of suffering, whether it's illness or great loss uh, or, you know, financial problems or health problems, um, for sure. But it doesn't have to be all that you know, uh, that dramatic. I mean, we suffer all the time with little disappointments and, and, uh, uh, you know, the sort of hope that some, we know, for example, that where we're in a situation that feels really good, you know, are we really feeling that situation and feeling that joy? Or are we basically overwhelmed by the fact that we know that's going to disappear 
at mm. some point because we can't mm. freeze it. You know, whether that's with your hanging out with your children or whether or not it's in some other situation, which is really good. The reality is that we know that that's is insubstantial as the thinking that we look at in, in meditation. The suffering is kind of not being able, not being prepared to kind of hold on to uh, the moment and basically always thinking about uh, what's to come. Uh, and the what's to come in many cases is uh, um, either depressing or frustrating or something like that. So in any case, to you, <laughs> To your question, um, I think it is important to recognize our own suffering. And by doing that, I think we recognize that we've got an experience which is the same then as the experience of the people around mm -hmm. us. But yeah. by starting with ourselves, because it's the most intimate, it's the, it's the easiest to kind of hold on to. It's also the one that requires the most honesty because you have to deal with your own sense of who you are as an individual. That gives us kind of a much uh, uh, more profound foundation, I think, to be able to work in a bigger world. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then the working in the bigger world, I mean, you know, people probably know I mean, the word compassion means to suffer with. And, you know, the notion of suffering with someone else uh, coming from someone who hasn't engaged their own sense of suffering basically means that you're helpful to a point, but not as far as you could go if you actually took a, a deeper and more honest look at who you are as an individual so that you really kind of understood, uh, really understand where you're coming from in terms of uh, going out into a bigger world. And, and sometimes compassion in some people's um, vocabulary might mean weakness. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Say, say a little more. What do you so, mean? So sometimes you run across people and say, well, too compassion. They're just too compassionate. Um, they're not going to get anything done. Uh, uh. This job needs to be done. You know, that sort of thing. And they might see compassion as a weakness in somebody, um, not a strength. Yeah, that's a really, it's an interesting question. I mean, I don't think, um, so I don't think there's ever a situation where being kind is a weakness, but I do understand. On the other hand, kindness doesn't mean all, always being nice. And mm -hmm. so I, have, I had a Buddhist teacher uh, who, who coined a phrase in the early 70s in a book that he wrote, uh, and that phrase was idiot compassion which didn't mean much yeah. to the people that at the time I was 19 years old when I first heard it and I had no <laughs> idea what to make of it but as we looked at it more deeply I think that may be getting to some Trish mm -hmm. somewhat to what you're talking about so for example um well we're living in a in a in a time where where addiction is a huge issue the you know what somebody might want from you as your expression of kindness is to enable the addiction, right. provide the substance, provide the alcohol, what, whatever it is. And so for the person receiving that, uh, that uh, you know, the drug or the alcohol, they may view you as a kind person in that sense. Right. And, and from their perspective, it, they truly right. believe that you're being compassionate and kind. In the somewhat bigger picture, by enabling the addiction as opposed to assisting somebody to kind of move toward a path of wellness or, or, or recovery, um, are you really being compassionate? Or are you basically um, kind of giving in to a kind of emotional uh, need to simply be, you know, temporarily helpful? That's tricky, though, because, you know, it also, I, I've seen people who kind of took this concept of idiot compassion 
to to extremes. And so, you know, we're suddenly they'll be in a sort of yelling at somebody because they feel like, well, that's what they need. You know, it's the wake up call. It's the slap in the face, (laughs) you know, whatever it is. And I think there is a point where you have to be self-regulating enough to to be able to know, um, you know, how how you're actually engaging in a situation. So on balance, I would rather work with somebody that's seemingly too compassionate than not yeah. compassionate enough if we Definitely. if we can say that right. i don't think we we don't lack for people that are basically jerks right. <laughs> what what <laughs> what we need is actually let's work with people whose natural tendency is to be kind and compassionate and figure out ways that you can challenge it to be the most effective uh that you can be coming from that perspective that's right. actually a not a bad problem right. to have to deal right. with um so going back to Naropa, because I think our listeners um, want to hear more about Naropa, may not have heard of it. Sure. Um, so what's what's the latest and greatest that's going on there now? So, you know, just brief, briefly, so Naropa is now 44 years old, um, an unlikely experiment. Uh, started in 1974. It was going to be a summer session where some artists and religious teachers and scientists uh, would came together in Boulder, Colorado, not a bad place to spend the summer. We expected uh, to talk about the integration of Eastern and Western uh, spirituality and how the arts and sciences kind of engaged. And it was really early on. So for people that don't follow the mindfulness movement, I mean, nobody was even talking about this stuff in the yeah. 70s. It was just beginning. Uh, we hoped that a couple hundred people would come to Boulder for those conversations. We had 2,000 people that summer that kind wow. of emerged or, or descended, I guess, <laughs> on Boulder. Uh, we didn't exactly know what we were doing. I mean, we just had this idea to convene uh, a, a dialogue. Who was it? You and well, it was founded by a Tibetan teacher, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who kind of remarkably, only 15 years earlier, led 250 people across the Himalayas to escape from Tibet during the uh, the political turmoil. And in those 15 years, ended up in England, went to Oxford, started some meditation centers learned fluent English and by 1972 was teaching at the University of Colorado by invitation and had this idea that there was a place in the West for an institution that basically invited interfaith dialogue, but also included writers and poets and performers and scientists. And, you know, in those days, all of the I would say, so for example, a lot of people know Daniel Goldman's work on emotional intelligence. Uh, he was at Naropa as a very young scientist in the, in the mid-70s and began basically talking about what became, now we think emotional intelligence is something that's been around for right. 200 years. Well, the right. fact is it's been around for about 35 until, you know, yeah. once he wrote his book. Those kinds of things happened <clears throat> at Naropa uh, in the 70s. And, and then from there... Uh, we did evolve into an accredited university, uh, believing that um, we were validated in some way because people were actually engaged and, you know, since then have have been offering undergraduate and graduate degrees. The difference with in Europe is that we have degrees in all of the sort of traditional liberal arts subjects, education and psychology and environmental studies and, and uh, writing and poetics and theater and so on. Um, religious studies, of course, because of our roots, all of our curriculum 
has mindfulness or meditation and compassion practice baked into it. So uh, it's not a separate course that somebody takes. Mm -hmm. It's not a particular, you know, it's not siloed in that way. How our faculty in, uh, integrate mindfulness practice in the classroom is completely up to them. And so what the th a theater professor would do mm -hmm. in a performance class is very different from what a psychology faculty member in a master's program training therapist would do. But everyone brings in the, these, these qualities into the classroom. What's happening now to your question of the latest is that, um, you know, fast forward 43 years, we actually still have some faculty that were around at the beginning. They're retiring, obviously, or they're getting old like me and and uh, and making room for younger, um, younger faculty and who we're attracting now because of the times in many cases have a strong research and science interest in addition to their own personal meditation practice. And so more and more what we're doing is uh, attracting faculty that are really looking at the kind of neuroscience of the work. And of course that's happening broadly around the country. The, the benefit of Neuropen, I talked to a, a neuropsychologist um, at the University of Miami, Amishi Jha, who's, who's been working with the military actually and doing a lot of work on mindfulness training. Um, one of the things that she said that she really likes about Naropa is that Naropa as a whole is basically the kind of lab that she would covet at a place like the University of Miami. So for her to find uh, you know, a cohort of students to work with that have had a long meditation practice is hard work. I mean, you know, there aren't that many of them. You come to Naropen, it's basically, <laughs> I don't know, fish in a barrel is probably a bad, <laughs> right. a bad analogy. But nevertheless, that, so we have a community of people and it's small. I mean, we have a thousand people in Boulder, a thousand students in Boulder, but a community of people, all of whom are there because of some commitment yes. to working on the sort of transform yourself, transform the world. Uh, that, that, you know, we were founded to express. And so um, the research piece is very exciting. Um, the compassion piece is extremely exciting. One of the risks I think that we have in the mindfulness movement now is that it's going to be, it, it continues to become too clinical. That it's basically, it's like a non-pill form of a mm -hmm. prescription medicine. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, it's not like that. I mean, our, I think it, it, or it's it's not successful if it's like that. And I think that what we need besides clinicians, besides mindfulness teachers who understand the techniques and so on, is we also need compassionate actors. And we need people that actually will work with the work with mindfulness, but also look at it as how it heals a world that's in need of healing. Mm. Tricia and I had the opportunity to go to the University of Wisconsin to the um, Center for Healthy Minds with Richie Davidson. Yep. And um, we were so intrigued by their studies and research going on that study the positive qualities of the mind. And so there's this idea of, um, Tricia coined this phrase, uh, mental wellness yep. rather than mental illness. Mm. And um, so... At Naropa, are are you addressing um, how how do you address mental wellness? Yeah, so that's a great and complex question. <laughs> um, so you know, big picture, and I'm glad you mentioned Richie Davison because uh, he and I actually he was at Harvard and I was at Brandeis in the late '60s, and we discovered only recently that we both studied with the same yoga teacher uh, <laughs> in the days when nobody knew what yoga 
really was, but mm -hmm. we had this long, long connection. But um, big picture, colleges, not just Naropa, but universities across the country are finding that the students that are arriving now are coming with um, uh, an increased need for mental health counseling and support. Uh, than they've more than they've ever seen to the point where um, three universities, University of Virginia, Wisconsin, where Richie is, and UCLA, are together taking a look at what are some different models that we can use to actually provide that support because their traditional clinics have been overwhelmed by people needing uh, those kinds of services. And all three of the universities I just mentioned all have people on staff that are also mi working in mindfulness and the science of mindfulness. And they're trying to figure out uh, what to do uh, that might be somewhat different from the more traditional uh, approach to mental health. Uh, Naropa is smaller, but not immune from those things. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we may even attract more students uh, who feel, they may not be able to articulate it, but they feel a need for some level of mental health support that they didn't get, you know, previously. It also happens to be that our graduate school of psychology is our biggest program. And so we're training therapists. And I will say a little bit proudly um, that Naropa graduate therapists are among the most effective uh, counselors and therapists that there are because they're coming from their own personal grounding in a meditation or mindfulness practice in addition to getting the academic skills that they need to be, um, you know, to be an effective therapist. And so um, we, we're spending, and, and they approach it from the perspective that the client is basically well and that there may be, and that's an important that's distinction, fair. I think, mm -hmm. from uh, what we may be used to in a Western medical model, that people mm -hmm. are presenting with issues uh, where they are basically ill in some way right. and that the, you know, the, the doctor or the therapist's uh, job is to convert somebody who is ill into somebody who's well. Our view is, is that, you know, and it's not naive, I think, and I think science is starting to bear it out, that if you, if you view the person that you're engaging as fundamentally holding all the kind of qualities uh, of wellness that they need, but perhaps have masked them, perhaps have, have, you know, gone, you know, they've compartmentalized it in some way, uh, then the job is to kind of more unpeel and kind of get back to that kind of kernel of wellness or basic goodness is sometimes... Uh, called, uh, I know that you know the Buddhist teacher Pema Chudron, who's a Western yes. woman who's a nun. And, you know, Pema and I studied with the same teacher, and, and basic goodness was really an important and not easy to get quality because, you know, this, we're, we're not trained that way uh, in the West. We're trained much more to, to take a look at, we're either neutral or flawed, I right. mean, one or the other, right. not necessarily basically good. If you flip it and take this view that people that are sitting across from you, our fundament, you know, have this kind of, uh, you know, basic healthiness or basic goodness, although they may be struggling and they may be um, presenting themselves as anything but, uh, then the job is to kind of allow people to rediscover that, that quality. And that's through whatever therapeutic techniques are used. So that's a pretty, I think that's sort of the way that not sort of. I mean, that is the way that we're we're addressing it, and what sets uh, you know a therapist that has a neuropa degree apart from perhaps others. So good, yeah, really, that's incredible. You know, I 
you know, you're so amazing in your <laughs> in where you've been and what you've done in your life. Do you mind sharing with everybody how you got started and how this all happened and how you got sure. to where you are today? And how you met your great wife, Judy. Oh, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, I'm old, so it's a long story, but I'll try. And <laughs> um, So I was very involved in the late 60s and early 70s in civil rights and um, uh, anti-Vietnam War politics is really where I came from. And so, uh, and that started early on. I came, I came from a family that valued uh, social justice. And so mm -hmm. I, I kind of had support at home. And when I was really young, when I was 17 years old, I was able to spend a semester of my high school senior year working for a political campaign for Carl Stokes, who became the first African-American mayor of a major American wow. city. And I, um, I knew nothing. I mean, but they, they tolerated me and they, you know, they, I organized young students to basically knock on doors. And anyway, it, it sort of began a, a passion that I had for social justice work. Um, which, you know, carried on for the rest of my life. And when I was in college at Brandeis. Do you have any brothers and sisters? I have one brother. Okay. And yeah. was he also in social justice? Too? Um, or you kind in, of carried in, that for the by, family? By, by, <laughs> by propensity and character, yeah. yes. But he had a different journey. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Um, I went to university to, to Brandeis, and I was still very engaged in the work. And it was the height of the Vietnam War. So it was a pretty intense time, uh, you know, certainly on college campuses around this country. And I got to this place where I was very, very, still very, very passionate about the work that I was doing. And I also knew that I didn't have the language for it that I have today, but I knew that there was something going on internally that was knocking me off balance. I felt increasingly angry. And to some extent, the, angry, ang the anger was righteous, uh, at least from my political perspective. Um, but it was having a real impact on me. I was not a very nice person. As a result, I didn't feel like I was um, who I wanted to be. I didn't know. But I did, again, I had no, yeah. you know, think about this. This is 1970. Right. Nobody knew anything about right. what we, we talk today as if everybody knows known meditation and mindfulness practice forever. Well, we didn't. And it was just a good fortune that I had a professor uh, at Brandeis who was just beginning himself to explore uh, meditation practice. And it was very controversial. I mean, he couldn't talk about it in the classroom because it was seen as this kind of what hippie stuff that mm -hmm. had no place in the academy, so to speak. <laughs> but he very quietly introduced some of his students to a yoga teacher. This is this uh, yoga okay. teacher that it turned out okay. Richard Davison and I both <laughs> studied with, um, who in hindsight was not a really great yoga teacher. But at the time, <laughs> it didn't matter because what I, I mean, you know, it's horrifying right. today what I did. But in any case, um, what he did do was open a door to some kind of inquiry. I had, you know, I was born, I was, I was raised Jewish, uh, pretty secular right. practitioner, but that certainly nothing about Buddhism was uttered in my household. Right. I mean, I don't know what Buddhism was. Right. Um, but I, I, I got the sense from doing some yoga practice and some meditation that there was something to it because it started to allow me to get more clear about who I was mm -hmm. and, and who I didn't want to be. Mm -hmm. And so um, just out of, you know, if you're Buddhist, you believe in karma and, you know, whatever conditions were aligned. Uh, in 1970, I met this this Tibetan teacher, Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche, while I was still a, a college student. 
um, spent time with him. Where thought, did you meet him? Was I he- met, well, um, he was at Oxford and opened a meditation center in Scotland that I was going to go and visit because I was going to bail for a summer and just <laughs> get away. And when we wrote to see if we could come and visit, they wrote back and said, oh, we just bought this farm in Vermont, which was all of three hours away from where I was living. And if you want to come there, you can. And so that's what happened. And, and uh, the summer of 1970, uh, I was still, I was entering my junior year in college, um, visited, met him for reasons I still cannot describe, you know, 47 years later, made this incredibly deep connection. Uh, thought that you know, Buddhism in general and certainly meditation practice specifically was incredibly important to me. And so as a result, and he's a teacher, unlike some spiritual teachers who um, not only kind of tolerated, but insisted that people also continue to do the work in the world that was they were mm-hmm. passionate about. And so there was no sense, I mean, yes, I spent time on meditation retreats, but they were always meant to be, you know, moments in time where I would then go back into the world. Mm-hmm. And, and so I didn't have to make a choice between whether or not I would continue to do work around social justice issues or meditate. I mean, that was not, yeah. those were not a choice. Those were together because that was how the sort of path, at least as, as, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, uh, taught it unfolded. And so that was really important yes. to me because I didn't, you know, I felt like I didn't have to, you know, go in one direction or another. And sort of from there, as a result, I had this kind of meditation practice. I went to law school, wow. became a lawyer, and then most of my career was working in nonprofits, uh, creating affordable housing mm-hmm. for homeless families, uh, health care centers for people living with AIDS, and economic development projects to create jobs. You told us about the one time that, um, and you'll have to remind us, the Ben and Jerry's? Mm. Yeah, tell us that. <laughs> okay. Um, so I was the president of a nonprofit called the Grayston Foundation, which is based in Yonkers, New York. And Yonkers is right next to New York City, next to the Bronx. And uh, founded by a Zen Buddhist uh, priest named Bernie Glassman, who that's a whole other story, but he is a Jewish Buddhist rocket scientist for real, had a PhD in mathematics and worked for McDonnell Douglas on the Mars missions in the 60s. But his particular spiritual path was social action as well. So it resonated with me and I'd known Bernie for a long time. So in any case, I, I became the president of this organization called the Grayston Foundation, and we grew it. I think there were uh, 15 employees when I got there, and there were about 200 when I left. And so, you know, we evolved. And one of the things that we did was we created a wholesale bakery. So we were basically as a job training vehicle for people mostly who were ex-offenders living in very, very dire low-income circumstances. And Yonkers is an interesting place. It's in Westchester County, um, uh, New York. People think of Westchester County as one of the wealthiest places in the world, yeah. which it is mm-hmm. uh, in many ways. And yet when I got to Grayson in the in the 80s, Yonkers had the highest per capita rate of homelessness anywhere mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. And so there were, holding both of those realities was a really amazing place to work, you know. Right. Um, 
But one of the projects was this wholesale bakery, and uh, we made this connection. Bernie opened the door to a connection with Ben Cohn, the Ben of Ben and Jerry's, uh, at a conference that actually happened in Boulder, of all things. So the Boulder thing keeps coming back. Uh, And Ben said, oh, we would love to support the work. If you can make a product that we can use in our ice cream, we'd be happy to do it. Mm -hmm. It was not without... (laughs) trouble because uh, it's not easy to make a product that will work for an right. international food brand you know this is not something you do in your kitchen in your home kitchen right. but eventually it worked out that uh, we perfected uh, the recipe for a brownie and the brownies which are now in all of the Ben and Jerry's chocolate fudge brownie Amazing. ice cream and yogurt <laughs> and so on and that that started in the mid 80s and um uh, hundreds and hundreds of people have been given employment as a result. Wow. The bakery has expanded. It's still in Yonkers doing really well. Um, and the, it, the most unique thing about it, I think, and, and this is actually something that the UN is studying right now, is that the bakery has had from the beginning what's called an open hiring policy. Wow. So if there's an open job, the first person that wants wow. the job gets it. There are no background checks. There's no resume check. Um, if you're on the list, as soon as your name gets to the top of the list, you get a call and you're offered the job. You're offered not just work, however, but a whole host of supports around housing and childcare and literacy in some cases. Uh, but that's basically the model as a way of lowering completely the barrier to employment that so many people coming out of low-income communities and certainly coming out of the just, uh, prison mm-hmm. system uh, experience where they can't even get in the door because of what choices they made in the past. Mm-hmm. And so the Grayson model, and I, I just talked to a faculty member at a business school who said, oh, I just went on a tour of Grayson with wow. 70 people through this UN project that's looking at open hiring as an actual model, oh uh, to, which is blew wow. me away. I mean, yeah. you know, it was like 30 years later and and it's all this story so that uh but one of the things at grayston uh that is also unique is that we didn't shy away from inviting people to learn some mindfulness practices as well and now we were dealing with a community if they had a spiritual tradition at all it was most likely christian some muslim certainly not Buddhist. And so we had to be very careful that we weren't coercive. We were not trying to convert people into becoming Buddhist or anything like that. But there was a real thirst for Mm -hmm. learning some personal development techniques that, you know, growing up as most of these men and women did, they never were exposed to. They were certainly not, you know, the days of the idea that this stuff would be taught in the schools was completely, you know, just absurd. You know, now... That's right. happening all over right. the country, but then it certainly didn't. And so it was really exciting to be able to be helpful, not just in providing employment, you know, with benefits and housing and all of that, but to also provide people with some tools yeah, right. uh, for right. their own kind of, you know, to deal with their own personal issues, which were huge, as you can imagine, right. given where where folks came from. That's mm. incredible. Yeah. That really wow. No, it was a blessing. It was a, it was a really wonderful thing to be able to do and. As a result, I met, you know, it was an early version of a social enterprise, you know, which now, again, we think about social enterprises have been around forever. Um, but Grayson was one of the pioneers. And so I had the opportunity, therefore, to, you know, travel around and talk about our model and our story. And, you know, we had our kind of opportunity then to help others as right. they created their own ideas. And then where did you go from there? 
then I then I uh, created a small company um, to work with nonprofits on complicated uh, low income housing projects. And so because a lot of the nonprofits just didn't have the capacity. So we did that uh, with a, I did that with a partner. My business partner became the mayor of Burlington, Vermont, <laughs> just at the time that Naropa had an opening for in the presidency. Um, so I was on the board at that time. I stepped off the board and I was the 180th application for wow. the job and, and uh, got hired about six years ago. Wow. Incredible. Do we have time for one? Yeah. We have well, um, this is sort of a broad question, maybe a good question to end with. But what do you see as the challenges in the mindfulness world right now? Um, you know, I think there's a, there's a sort of Buddhist uh, expression of trying to hold your mind not too tight, not too loose. Mm -hmm. And I think that applies, and that's, that's a good meditation instruction itself. Yeah. It actually, to me, applies to the mindfulness movement altogether because I think, on the one hand, I think we, we want to continue to allow a thousand different expressions of what mindfulness means. And we need people to feel free to kind of explore uh, techniques and trainings and, you know, find lots of ways in which to kind of bring mindfulness uh, into the world. At the same time, um, because it is a kind of emerging so fast, an emerging field of activity, we have to be concerned about the quality and the capability and the competence of the people that are right. actually doing this work. And because now anybody can call themselves a mindfulness practitioner. I mean, there's nothing, you know, it's, you're in, call yourself a doctor, you get into trouble if you're not a doctor, if you right. don't have an MD or a <laughs> yeah. DO or whatever. <laughs> call yourself a mindfulness practitioner. You know, there isn't really any single place that anybody can go to kind of assess the quality and the competence and the training of the people that are doing the work. And so, and I realize this is a complicated question, you know, because on the one hand, the sort of open source model is what we're used to in right. some way. And I think that's good and that brings innovation. And on the other hand, and I know you'll talk with other people on your podcast that they'll probably have different views here. But uh, on the other hand, I do think it's really important that if somebody calls themselves a mindfulness teacher, that there be some way of assessing uh, uh, you know, mm -hmm. where their training came from and so on. I mean, I, I basically use the analogy that if you go to a weekend workshop to learn Excel, uh, for example, a Microsoft product, and you have a bad Excel teacher, the worst that happens is, is you come away not knowing how to use right. Excel. That is not the end of the world. You right. can figure, right. you can still live without <laughs> right. knowing that. You go to a weekend program with a bad mindfulness instructor, and you're starting to work with your mind and you're starting yeah. to work with the emotions and the mm -hmm. feelings and all of the things that arise, mm -hmm. that's actually risky because mm -hmm. you suddenly are coming away feeling like you've got these tools and techniques. And if they're not uh, presented in an accurate and ethical and, you know, clear mm -hmm. and precise way, uh, I mean, I as a teacher would be scared to death because I think you're taking on responsibility. You're not becoming their spiritual teacher for sure. Right. But at the same time, you are actually unlocking uh, what maybe has been repressed for a long time in people. And if it's not done well, that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that we have to be vigilant, I guess, mm -hmm. is my point. And I'm not sure where I come down yet. I'm not mm -hmm. sure I want the international accrediting 
you know, body exactly, right. although there is a movement afoot to kind of create such things, which mm -hmm. is fine, and I actually mm -hmm. am following. I think it's a good thing to look at. And at the same time, I know that we have to be careful and we have to be willing to kind of self-regulate mm -hmm. this field. And we have to be willing to call out um, uh, incompetence when we see it. And right. we can't be afraid of that. Right. It's pretty amazing to sit here and talk to Chuck, who is at the beginning of a movement and now at a place where structure is needed. I mean, you know, I guess it's any time that there's a mm -hmm. movement, a product or whatever, there's always then has to be some sort of structure, right, put in place so that it can be sustained in the proper way. Yeah, I think the structure is important. And I think what we have to be careful, though, is to not become, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sectarian about it. Right. I mean, you know, it's not my way is the only way. I mean, there are lots of different ways to to uh, approach this work. And we have to be, you know, incredibly open. I mean, there's going to be a lot of seats at that table. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean, however, that we don't call out, um, you know, problems when we see them. And right. I think so how we hold both, mm -hmm. uh, you know, open invitation, encouragement to, you know, keep experimenting and exploring. Uh, and at the same time, making sure that we understand the ethical responsibility that anyone calling themselves a mindfulness teacher is taking on, mm -hmm. you know, those are both important and they're both, you have to hold right. both. And that's, I think that's the key. Mm -hmm. Chuck, um, we want to thank you so much. Trisha and I consider you a friend. Um, we're grateful to you for speaking at our conference, the Achieving Optimal Health Conference. You were amazing there. And it's just so great to see you again. Thank you. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week. We loved having you with us and look forward to seeing you next week. Um, in the meantime, look us up at bbnrconsulting.us. Feel free to subscribe on iTunes and leave us a message. Until then, I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.